Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. You know, last week, Sarah told us about Jacob and how he lied and cheated his brother Esau and made him very, very mad and so mad that his parents decided that actually you probably need to leave town. Otherwise, your brother's going to hurt you forever. Like there's going to be some issues. And so his parents decide to send him away and they come up with the perfect excuse for why to make him leave. And that's that he needs to go find a wife from his mom's hometown. So they send him away with barely anything by himself, running for his life from his brother, who is super mad at him for all the things that he's done to him. And we're told uh, in, uh, when we reach this point in the series, in the book of Genesis, that he ran away straight into the place where God's presence was at. He even names it as God's house, the house of God. You could say he ran away straight into the church. That was where Jacob went as he was running away. And Derek Kidner wrote that this is a supreme display of divine grace. It's unsought and lavish. Unsought for Jacob was no pilgrim or returning prodigal. Yet God came out to meet him by taking him by surprise. Lavish for there was no word of reproach or demand. Only a stream of promises from the past to the future. Lavish and surprising. Good news, that's how Jesus always works. So let's see what Jesus does in this story of Jacob and what that says to us, but let's pray and then we'll read it. Jesus, I do just thank you that you care about the runaways and the people who stay too long. You care about the mediocre folks, the people who aren't trying quite hard enough the people who are just trying to escape. You care about us and all of our weakness and lack that you love us so much. And I thank you that there's nowhere that we can run to that where we can escape you. You know, in Psalms it says that where can we go from your presence? Where can we hide from your spirit? We can't go high or low, east or west because you are there. I pray that this morning that we'll be aware of your presence here and of your goodness to us in that, the way that you want to come and speak to us to reorient us, to rearrange our lives. Thank you that you are lavish and you are surprising to us. And I pray that we'll encounter that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 28, looking at verse 10. Here's what it says. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled towards Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp, and he stopped there for the night. He found a stone to rest his head against, and he lay down to sleep. That's some like desperate like traveling right there. I put my head against the stone for the night. I don't think I'm getting up in the morning. And as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. And he saw angels of God going up and down the stairway. And at the top of the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather, Abraham, the God of your father, Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. 
Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything that I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid, and he said, What an awesome place this is. It's none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. And the next morning he got up very early, and he took the stone that he had rested his head against, and he set it up as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it, and he named that place Bethel, which means house of God although it was previously called Luz. Then Jacob made this vow, if God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this pillar that I have set up will become a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything that he gives me. Did you catch that the place where Jacob is sleeping had a name? At this point in the story, I mean, any place, if you like can picture this a little bit, like any place that you could travel by yourself, stay in the open air overnight back in the day, like does not have much going on, right? We could like, we could picture that. Like there's no threat of anything bad happening to him if he's putting his head down on a rock to sleep for the night in the middle of nowhere. Like, but this place actually had a name. It was previously called Luz. History tells us that Luz was actually a large city by ancient standards before this. But now it's nothing more than just a spot in the middle of nowhere for a guy traveling to be able to sleep. It was unremarkable until God chose to meet him. And it became Bethel, the house of God. What's interesting about what happens in this dream is the way that God kind of shows up and reverses their worst fears from earlier in Genesis. There's a couple of things in this picture that are reversals of what humanity did. At the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned and they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they're kicked out of the presence of God forever. There's this fear of like, is God going to be with us? Is he still going to be working on earth? Is he still going to come and mess with our lives in a really good way? And then Jacob has this dream and it's shown to him that God didn't leave humanity at all, but that he's still coming and moving. It's good news because it means that humanity did nothing to make this door open. In Genesis chapter 11, we're told that at the Tower of Babel, that they literally tried to make a stairway that went up to heaven from earth. The exact thing that Jacob has a dream of happening here, sees in Bethel happening, they tried to make happen years before. And it's good news because it shows that God was already making his own stairway down into earth. His own initiative, his own plan, he was already coming and moving around us and moving among us, even though they tried and failed. At Bethel, 
we're told that even though humanity has failed, that God didn't give up on us. That our worst fears of God leaving us alone are unfounded, and our worst behaviors of trying to become God are not so big that they stopped God from engaging with us and working in our lives. Jacob arrives at this powerful spot that shows that all the things that have come before did not stop God from moving, and he didn't even know it. And in this spot, he gets this blessing and this promise from God that changes the trajectory of his life completely forever. As Walter Brueggemann wrote, this dream permits the entry of an alternative into his life. The dream is not a morbid review of a shameful past, although it could have been. It's rather the presentation of an alternative future with God. The presentation of an alternative future with God. Up until this point, Jacob has had to lie and cheat his way into everything that he's had. Nothing was given to him open-handed. That's his entire life story up until this point. And here he is on the run from that past, and God shows up and hands him everything free of charge. Not because he fixed it, but because God's good, right? God gave it to him. Jacob is not a good guy. He is not faultless. But God is good. You know, I love digging into the Bible because it is just surprising and powerful when we start to dig in and see what it is that it's actually saying. And we've been digging into Genesis for five weeks, and I hope that over these five weeks that you've realized something very, very important. That Abraham is not a hero. That Isaac is not a hero. And that Jacob is not a hero. And that you and I are not heroes. And that's okay, because God's the only hero in this story. God is the one who gives grace when it's ridiculous to even think that we can ask for it. God is the one who has a plan that stretches across generations and decades and centuries. God is the one who is constantly saving and giving second chances to people who didn't even think that they deserved to get a second chance. God is the one who comes and meets with us when we are at our lowest. When we're in places where we are lonely and suffering and broken. And he speaks words of life and hope, and he provides for us in ways that literally give us life. When you meet God, you're changed. When you meet me, you're not. When you meet Jacob, you're not. When you meet God, you're changed. Because he's the only hero in this story. And I believe that for each of us, that there's a moment in our lives that hits like what we see happening here with Jacob. This moment, like Brueggemann says, where we are presented with an alternative future with God. A time in our life where all of a sudden God comes and speaks to us and shows us that there's something more that we can have. Maybe it happens for you. Maybe it happened when you were at your lowest feels dark. Everything's over. 
top of you, you feel the weight of it. And in that moment, it's like you see a light and all of a sudden you're aware that Jesus is there and that he's saying, hey, come on. He's offering his hand to you. Maybe it's not at a moment like that. Maybe it's at a time when you're living a fairly good life. But God shows up and he says, like, this is fine. You can, I guess you can do that if you want. But what if you come and follow me? And you see that there's so much more to be found in following him. Have you had that sort of a moment in your life? You know, I asked a small group that I lead on Sunday nights uh, a couple of weeks ago to share why they decided, why they made the choice to follow Jesus. And then I let them talk. And I have reasonable expectations in discussion times. I do not expect for everybody to talk um, or for everybody to love every question that I ask. Uh, However, that one, it was amazing. I just stood back and I watched is all of a sudden everybody wanted to share how they met Jesus, what he invited them into, what it changed, how it made the rest of their life look different. Nobody wanted to skip. Everybody wanted to be a part of telling that story to the people who were sitting around them. Do you have that sort of a moment, a story where Jesus came and offered it all to you? Have you had it? What And if not, what if Jesus came right now and spoke to you right here and right now and said, hey, what if you come and follow me? And he showed you a picture of what life would look like if you were his follower. I can guarantee a couple of things. It would be just as generous as what we see him offering Jacob because that's how God does And it would be free because he doesn't wait for us to fix everything, to change everything, to make it all right. He just comes and does. That's how Jesus works because he already paid it all and because he loves us that much. What would your answer be in that sort of a moment if Jesus came and laid it all in front of you? at the doorway of heaven. Here's what Jacob said. Surely the Lord is in this place and I wasn't even aware of it. And then he makes a vow. He says, if God provides for me, then God will be my God and I seal this commitment by worshiping through giving a tenth of everything. Is that what you expected him to say at that moment? It seems a little underwhelming, a little bit grabby. Like, well, God, if you give me a little bit more, if you prove yourself. But like, it was okay. God was fine with this. But that's how he answered. You know, sometimes the Bible takes us down paths that we don't expect it to take us down. Uh, It says things that we don't expect it to say. Uh, But... I want to be true to what it is that Jacob was saying here, and I want to talk about his response to that moment. So I want to talk about our giving as worship, because that's what Jacob takes us down. You know, Jacob makes a commitment to God to give a tenth of all that he had. 
and he committed to give it forever. The word in Hebrew that's used here is a word that means on and on and on and on. It's not a one-time word. It's a continuous word that he gives us right here. And Jacob's commitment, his vow, his promise to God, hundreds of years later, becomes a practice that all of his descendants have to live by. Like, thanks, Jacob. Appreciate it. You know, like, I don't know how they felt about it at that point. But like in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, probably favorite books of the Bible, um, God instructs the Israelites to do a thousand and one things, and they call it the law of Moses, because Moses was the lucky guy who got to give it all. That's what makes you loved as a leader, when you tell people what they have to do. Uh, But he instructs them to give a tenth of everything that they make, that they raise, that they they reap, that they have to give it to God. It's to be their practice, their their way of living life. And they stuck to it. And I would assume, I haven't talked to any Jewish folks about it recently, but I would assume that it's still a practice because I don't know why that would change and other things haven't, right? Like it's still a part of their practice. For you and I, we don't live by most of the Old Testament laws. Um, And it's not just because we eat bacon, at least a few of us do. There's plenty of other ones about where you need to go to the bathroom and whatnot that I know you're not living by. Uh, So there's lots of things that we do not keep uh, from those books of the Bible. Uh, And it's mainly because Jesus came to bring a better law, a better option than the law. He basically said that we can't gain eternal life through just trying to live really, 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 really good lives. We're never going to do it. Like, it's impossible for us as humans. We don't have enough sacrifices to cover all the sins. And so he came and he died so that we had a sacrifice that covered the sins, so that we wouldn't keep putting Band-Aids on festering wounds. That's what he came and what he did. But Jesus didn't say, okay, so, because I'm going to do this thing for you, you can ignore everything else in the Old Testament. Ignore all of the law. Just push it away. It doesn't matter. That's not actually what he said. Matthew 5 tells us that Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. What is the purpose of the law? He, he doesn't necessarily say it here. He doesn't tell us exactly, but to his audience, they would have known. The purpose of the law is to keep you in relationship with God all the time through everything. To provide a way for that relationship to not fall apart. That's the purpose of the law. And so Jesus came to provide a way to be in relationship with God forever, even as imperfect people. But what's interesting is that if you read where Jesus talks about that in Matthew 5 and 6, he goes on and he doesn't make it easier from that point on. There is no hint of like, I'm doing you a solid, so you know you can just relax and lean back and life's going to get easier. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that he then goes into this 
speech about what it looks like to be his follower. And he says, okay, so if you think being followers of God is about not murdering, not lying, stealing, or having idols, then you've missed the point. That's not what this is about. That's the lowest common denominator. That's the most basic thing. If you think that just doing that is what makes you good, you've missed the point of what this is all about. Of course you shouldn't do those things. We know that, right? Don't kill people. Now it's been said. But what Jesus wants is much, much more. He says murder. Okay, we'll talk about murder. How about we talk about the anger and bitterness that you've let fester in your heart for years that has driven you to the point where you would think about doing something as terrible as murder. You want to talk about adultery? Great. Let's talk about that. Don't do it. But how about the lust that you've allowed to sit and grow in your heart when you're thinking about your neighbor, your coworker, your friend that has grown and grown and grown over the years? Why don't we deal with that? Let's talk about judging people. Don't judge people, okay. But also, how about dealing with the reason that you're wanting to judge people? Because you want to take the attention off of yourself. And so you're so focused on pointing out where everybody else is screwed up because you're desperate to not look at the ways that you've screwed up. How about dealing with your own stuff and finding freedom from that? Jesus lays all this out and he basically says, don't obsess over the rules. That gets you nowhere. Instead, obsess over following me and living like I live, which gives you everything. And Jesus did talk about money too. He talked about tithing. In Mark chapter 12, he, we're told that he's in uh, the, the temple and he's sitting back by the offering box like every good pastor should, staring at it, watching as people drop money in. That's like basically what it says. It's a little creepy, but like whatever. I guess that's what you do when you're waiting for the rabbi to start. Um, so he's watching everybody come in and he's watching all the rich people come and they drop in loads of money. And then he watches this poor widow come in and she drops in two coins that like are worth like nothing. You know, it's so small that it's not even worth commenting on. And when she drops it in, Jesus turns around and faces his followers and is like, here we go, guys. Let me tell you something. And he says this, tell you the truth. The poor widow has given more than all the rest for they gave a tiny part of their surplus but she, poor as she is, has given everything that she had to live on. Here's what he said. The rich people put in what was required. They gave their tenth. The poor widow gave generously, abundantly, more than what was required. And he praises her for how she lives. Friends, Jesus always calls us to more, not less. You know, there's certain things that Jesus says in the Gospels that leave us saying, like, like his disciples got annoyed with him. They were like, this does not, make, does not make us popular. And sometimes I feel that when I'm like, God, you really want me to talk about this? Like, this does not make us popular. Like, this is not it. But sometimes 
What's hard is what Jesus is calling us to. It's what's right. And what's right brings freedom. And Jesus came to bring freedom, not comfort. Jesus does not want passive, comfortable followers. He wants people who are willing to give everything to bring his kingdom on earth. He wants people who are all in. And so the New Testament lays out how we're supposed to live, and it tells us to give generously, with joy, cheerfully, enthusiastically, willingly. It says to open-handedly give what we've received from our Father, not focused on how comfortable we are, but focused on using what we have to bring God's kingdom to earth. It says to give so that there is no one in need, not looking for affirmation from other people, but only knowing that we are pleasing our Father and letting that be enough. That's what the New Testament tells us. That's different than an Old Testament percentage, and I understand that. And I know that many times, whenever this comes up, people are like, but Stephen, we like specifics. So what's the percentage, right? Like, are we talking 10% gross? Net? Like, are we to the church and then 5% to other. Like what, what is it that we're, that we're saying here? Uh, and the thing, there is no New Testament answer on that. But I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Amen. You know, I was talking to somebody in our church recently about giving and they said that for them, tithing, when they started to do it, was really hard. Uh, it was a sacrifice. Uh, and when God's asked them to give more, it's still been a sacrifice every time. But it's been an act of faith for them. And then they ended this way. They said, but God's always been generous. Like, that's, that's what it is. Is it easy? No. But God's generous. And if everything comes from him, you know, uh, I don't give, I used to give by check. Grow, you know, I, church was my runaway place. I've been around church most of my life. You figured that out. Like, I, I don't give by check anymore. We give online. It's 10%. That's what we do. Uh, it's separated from Sunday. And the way that we do like giving here, and I do have a purpose for that, and it's not to ask you to run up the aisle and give me money. So don't worry. That's not where we're going right here. But like, the, the way that we do giving is there's a box in the back and then you, there's also a website, the way that most of us do things financially, right, uh, that you could give to. We don't pass a basket in church. Anybody ever been in a church that passes a basket? You know what I'm talking about. You know, the KFC bucket going around the aisles. Like, I grew up in Ohio, so that's, that's how we did. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, we don't do that anymore. Uh, and it's partly because we don't carry cash and checks and you know, like, you know, you understand. Um, but it's also because of the way that church has done this through the centuries has not always been good. There's been a lot of guilt and shame and greed intermingled into this. And that's not how Jesus works at all. We don't want to giving. That's not how God works. But this week I did feel just really strongly that I wanted to say just really clearly that as a pastor, I do want to apologize for any way that our correction of bad habits has taken giving to God out of your worship. 
Because giving to God is nothing but worship. Nothing at all. It should never be disconnected in our hearts and our minds from a sacrificial act given to one who has given us everything and who loves us so much that he died for us. That is what it's in response to. I can remember times in my life, again, before I did it online, where I'd be in a church service and the basket would get passed and I'd take out my wallet and I'd pull out a bill to throw it in and then I'd felt a little bit of a nudge from Jesus, not the person sitting next to me. And I was like, okay. And I'd take out more and put it in. I can remember times where I was writing out a check for a certain amount and again, I felt a nudge and I knew that I was supposed to give more and so I did. And all of those times in my life, I did not have much money. Like, it wasn't an easy thing. It was sacrificial. But it was part of worship. Giving to the one who has given everything. So I guess what I'm saying is that if you need to run down the aisle, waving your check, dancing down the aisle, you can go ahead. (laughs) I did go to churches that did that, so it's not that far. Uh, But... Don't let how we do things, practices good or bad, uh, stop you from worshiping God in the way that he's asked you to worship him. Because Jesus always calls us to more, not less, in our worship. Romans 12 says, So dear brothers and sisters, I plead with your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Romans says that worship is sacrificially giving of everything that you are, that you have, that you own. Every single thing. Your, your time, your money, your relationships, your car, your house, your stock portfolio, your hobbies, whatever it is, giving of everything you have willingly to God as an act of worship. And it's different. And that's acknowledged when we read Romans. Like it's acknowledged that this looks different than everybody else. But transformation doesn't leave you looking like everybody else. Transformation leaves you looking different. Jacob gave willingly as an act of worship. He didn't do it because God or the pastor told him to. He gave because God came and he met him and he spoke to him and he gave everything to him freely and he loved him and that changed him completely. And so let me push a little. Have you met Jesus? Has he spoken to you? Has he shown himself to you? Does your worship, the way that you live your life, reflect the transformation that comes from being in his presence? In the sermon that I mentioned earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus ends one part by saying, in a word, what I'm saying is, this is Jesus' words, not mine, so, but what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity towards others. 
the way God lives towards you. It's not easy, but it is freedom bringing. So as we start to end, Jacob lived a lot of life after this. He got married twice. Wouldn't recommend that one. At the same time, too. So, I, you know, wouldn't recommend that one. Uh, he had a lot of kids, a lot of kids. Uh, he fought with his father-in-law for about 20 years. Uh, sounds super fun. And eventually he came home, and he was very nervous that his brother was going to try and kill him when he came home, so he gave him a lot of stuff. And his brother reacted with grace and with forgiveness towards him. And then when he finally gets home, God tells him to go back to Bethel. And Genesis tells us, Genesis 35 tells us about this second visit. It says, God appeared to him again at Bethel, and God blessed him, saying, Your name is Jacob, but you will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be Israel. So God renamed him Israel. And then God said, I am El Shaddai, the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. You will be a great nation Kings will be among your descendants, and I will give you the land that I once gave to Abraham and Isaac. Yes, I will give it to you and your descendants after you. Then God went up from the place where he had spoken to Jacob. The Hebrew word for Jacob means heel and deceiver. Not a very flattering name, right? Not at all. Israel means God fights. The first time in the house of God, Jacob's way of worshiping, of living, was transformed. He went from being a deceiver and a cheater to being one who gave generously. The second time in the house of God, it's made official that his transformation has happened. And his name has changed. He gets a new birth certificate. And he is never called deceiver again for the rest of his life. This morning, friends, Jesus is here. That stairway isn't just in Bethel in some part of the Middle East. God's here. He's speaking to us. And he's offering everything. And you have a choice. You can stay in Luz. Stay in the no-name, you know, kind of middle-of-the-way spot. And never encounter the presence of God. Or... You can open your eyes and accept the alternative future that Jesus is putting in front of you and be transformed. But I will warn you, Jesus always calls us to more. And he has a right to do it. Do you know why? Because he's proven himself faithful and trustworthy every single time. He's never left us. He's never neglected us. He's always been faithful. Mm-hmm.